0: You'll find Jeremiah, we will be in chapter 1, um, starting at verse 11. I'm going to read the second half of the chapter today. Also, I asked you to pray. Uh, the, obviously, we've got a change in weather and temperature and everything else, so my annual cold has showed up. So just pray that I get through this. Um, Jeremiah 1, verses 11 through 19, let's pray. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything I command you. Do not be dismayed by them lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to know everything that everything we need for faith and practice comes from you. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith and gives us hope because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. Help us hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen, amen. I used to think the Christian life was about doing. You know, give me the list of all the things I need to do. And the longer I've been a believer, the more I see it's about failing. I used to think my basic Christian task was to do what the Bible says. You know, and you can ask God for help on the way. And now I see the Christian life as really a daily acknowledgement that I actually can't do most of what the Bible says and have to cry out to God to do it for me and in me and usually in spite of me. And the first is a life of doing that leads to disappointment. The second is a life of failure, (coughs) excuse me, that leads to faith. So I'm clinging to that second promise that leads to faith. Because life is full of things I can't do, problems I can't fix. One writer recently described his can't fix life this way. How much of this will sound familiar? Think about this. He says The month began with an extended family picnic that erupted into an argument that still hasn't ended. Two weeks later, my son was diagnosed with epilepsy. Our heating system is wearing out, and our shower is cracked and leaks water into our dining room. You ever had one of those weeks? (coughs) Truth is, we've all had one of those weeks. And if you haven't, it's coming. I'm sorry. Um, Where it seems like everything's going wrong. And the problems are coming faster than we can fix. And sometimes the problems are, seem bigger than we can fix. And sometimes they seem like they're going to overwhelm or overpower us. Where is God in that? As Josh prayed earlier, why does he allow problems into our lives? Now, God's people have been asking this question for about three years thousand plus years now, especially since they were written down most particularly in the Psalms. The sons of Korah ask in Psalm 44, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? (coughs) Why do you forget our affliction? Why do you forget our oppression? And God has reasons for putting us in hard situations. Sometimes it's because I've made bad decisions and he would like me to be wiser and more obedient. But sometimes God puts us through hard times to show us that his grace is what's going to get us through those hard times. Not to take the problem away and not to take me out of the hard time, but to carry me through the hard time, even if I think it's hopeless or impossible. And every time God does that, he grows more faith in me. And hopefully when he brings you through a hard time, he grows more faith in you. Faith is a gift, Paul tells us, Ephesians 2. It's true in justification. We cannot do anything to save ourselves from our sins. We were dead in our sins, Paul says, and dead people can't do anything. But even after we're justified, We still can't create the faith needed for sanctification. God does that too every day of our lives. And one of his most effective methods for building our faith is allowing us to confront unfixable problems, unbearable pain, unconquerable sin, and then carrying us through. Now that approach goes against everything our culture says. Everyone around us, especially our employers, expect us to fix problems ourselves, or better yet, don't let them happen in the first place. I don't know about you, I mean, I really don't know about you, but I'm guessing that most of you don't get paid for failing on a regular basis. Probably not in your job description. Probably not part of your performance review. He failed six times this year. But God does things differently. His economy is different. It doesn't run on performance, but on grace. And the goal isn't to bless us materially, but to grow us closer and closer to him. And that takes faith, and faith flows the most in the midst of failure. Now, last week I told you the spiritual problems that we face in 2018 are the same problems Jeremiah faced and found depressing 2,600 years ago. And the discouragement of his ministry is evident at the end of that first half of the chapter, verse 10. It says, see, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The prophet's job description includes six tasks. Four of them are negative. Two to one, his words to the nations are words of judgment. Once the Lord plucks up, breaks down, destroys, and overthrows the nation, there's not much left. And there's a great deal of that in Jeremiah. So this verse is not just his job description, it's a summary of the book. He lives in such evil days that judgment outnumbers grace two to one. And now as we come into the second half of chapter one, we see that God's going to finish his call to Jeremiah with a flourish. It consists of visual lessons, hence the title of today's sermon. It's a spiritual show-and-tell, so to speak. The second half of Jeremiah 1 contains three object lessons. First, God shows the prophet an almond branch, then a boiling pot, and then an iron pillar. And finally, he tells them what all those things mean. So we're going to begin with the vision of the almond branch, which tells us that God's word will be fulfilled. God's word will be fulfilled. That should be the first blank in your outline. Verses 11 and 12. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me. That is the most common phrase in the book of Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord came to me. Saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. <coughs> What's the sign that winter is over and spring's on the way? Well, if you lived in the northern part of the United States, the first herald of spring is usually the birds. You start hearing them chirp again after a long, cold winter has finally melted away. But in most other parts of the country, a better indicator of spring is the flowers and the trees and the bushes. Perhaps for you, it's a dogwood or magnolia tree. You know you actually live in the south. Or maybe it's an azalea or forsythia uh, bushes on the side of your house. When blossoms start to appear, spring is on the way. And the urge to get out a baseball glove is irresistible. And of course, here in Washington, D.C., spring means cherry blossoms. We all know that. They publish a calendar. Here's the best weeks to go see the cherry blossoms. People come from all over the place to come see the cherry blossoms. And we kind of get used to it um, because we live here. But where Jeremiah was born in the small town of Innothoth, it wasn't cherry blossoms, it was almond blossoms. If they had wanted to, they could have had an almond blossom festival, you know, every spring. And even to this day, that uh, region of Judea is the center for almond growing. The almond tree is always the first to blossom. Already in January, the almond trees in Jeremiah's hometown are covered with white blossoms, And that gives some background to this first vision in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Very likely that branch was covered with white blossoms. Perhaps hadn't blossomed yet. The tiny buds are beginning to appear. But Jeremiah understood what the branch means. It's the first sign of spring. When the almond tree blossoms, the promise of spring is about to be fulfilled warm weather's on the way. Well, in our first visual lesson, our first show and tell, the almond blossom is the show. And next comes the tell, verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Here God is using a play on words to teach Jeremiah the spiritual significance of the almond branch. And this is how he sort of stoops to the level of Human understanding. Our Lord will even share puns. Amen, right? Frank loves puns. So that we might understand. And here the word for watching is a Hebrew word, shoked, with an O. It sounds like the Hebrew for almond, which is shoked, with an A. But one letter difference. And these two words, shoked and shoked, Are different forms of the same root word, the word for waking or watching. The almond tree was called the waking tree because it's the first tree to wake up after a long winter's nap. It's also the watching tree because that's the tree everybody watched for in the spring because that's what would clue them that spring was coming. And God chose Jeremiah an almond branch to teach him that he is wide awake. And he is watching. He is not asleep. He does not slumber. He never goes into hibernation. God is still on watch. He is wide awake, watching and waiting. And what God is watching for is to make sure that everything God's promised comes to pass. He's watching to see that his word is fulfilled. This is one of the main themes of the book of Jeremiah. One commentator calls the power and inescapability of the divine word moving relentlessly towards fulfillment. God is going to do everything he's promised to do. He's bringing his plans to completion. Even when it seems dormant, God's word is waiting to flower. It's not dead, it's alive. And like the almond tree, it's starting to blossom. You can no more prevent God's promise from being fulfilled, then you can keep the almond tree from blossoming in springtime. The almond branch gives hope to every Christian. It assures us that everything God has promised will come to pass. Every last one of his great and precious promises will be fulfilled. Now you think about it, the Bible's full of promises, there's hundreds of promises. It is good for us to remember the promises of God. There's the promise of redemption in Christ, Colossians 1. The promise of forgiveness of sins, 1 John 1. The promise of the free gift of the water of life, Revelation 22. There's the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit for this generation and the next, Acts 2. There's the promise that you'll be comforted when you mourn, shown mercy when you're merciful, filled with righteousness when you hunger and thirst after it, Matthew 5. There's the promise that God will give you wisdom, as we saw in James 1. And there's the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you, Joshua 1. Those promises are just the beginning. It's a long list. There's the promise that the pure in heart will see God, again, Matthew 5, that God's people will be with him. There's the promise that Jesus has gone to prepare a place in his father's house, and he will take you there, John 14. There is the promise the Lord Jesus Christ will transform your body to be like his glorious resurrection body, Philippians 3. And all of those promises are true. Every last one of them will be fulfilled. Some have already begun to bloom, like almond blossoms in springtime. But at some point, all of them will flower in the everlasting springtime of paradise. The Apostle Paul wraps up all the promises together, along with many more, when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's the vision of the almond branch, it's a wonderful vision. God's word will be fulfilled. It can't be stopped. But not everything Jeremiah says is wonderful because next he moves on to the vision of the boiling pot, which tells us that God's wrath is coming. Verses 13 to 16, God's wrath is coming. It begins, the word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, what do you see? And said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. It's a fancy way of saying facing south. Where do these people live? In the south. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land, for behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them, for all their evil and forsaking me, they have made offerings to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Glad we're not preaching this at Christmas time. I mean, what about words of judgment? We just saw God's promises get fulfilled. What about words of judgment? Do they come to pass too? Does God fulfill his threats as well as his promises? Well, this is the show, verse 13. The Lord came to me a second time. What do you see? I see a boiling pot. And once again, God's using something very common to teach Jeremiah. First, it was an almond branch. This time, it's a plain old cooking pot, probably made of iron or copper. (coughs) The prophet must have seen this pot on an open fire. As anyone who's been camping knows, it doesn't take long for water to boil on an open flame. Imagine the pot resting on the logs or the coals and heating to a boil. And the Hebrew doesn't literally say boiling, it says blown upon. In other words, the fire's being stoked, the flames are being fanned, the embers are bursting into flame, and as the pot's resettling in the fire, it tips to one side, and the boiling water bubbles over the side of the pot, and that steam goes hissing up from the flames. And that's the show of our second visual lesson. But then comes the tell, verse 14. The Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose. Now, if you're Jeremiah, you're thinking, I like the first visual lesson better. Let's stick with that one. But he's telling him, trouble is brewing And it's not hard to tell which way the wind is blowing. The boiling pot is tipping away from the north. Now, the Bible doesn't yet identify the northern peoples who are going to come spilling down towards Jerusalem, although we know from history it's probably going to be the Babylonians who are just gaining strength at the time. But the real point is God himself is the one who's doing the judging. God is calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north... When the Babylonians come, they are marching to God's orders. God is the one who's going to tip the boiling pot and pour it out over Judah. Judging sin is God's prerogative. He is the righteous judge who uproots and tear down uh, nations, who destroys and overthrows kingdoms. And as he says in verse 16, and I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. What will it be like for Jerusalem to be scalded by the boiling pot of divine judgment? The northern kings are coming. End of verse 15. Against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. So when judgment comes, Jerusalem will be a city under siege. The enemy armies will come in and camp all around her walls. And they don't need to attack. All they have to do is wait. And they're going to wait for the people of God to starve. And the people inside the walls will either starve or surrender. The armies don't even have to attack. But while they're at it, they have their way with all the defenseless villages and towns uh, in the surrounding countryside. And here's the real kicker middle of verse 15, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. That's a picture of humiliation. When an ancient king wanted to show his uh, dominance over his foes, he'd set up his throne in the gates of their capital city. Now, how degrading is that for Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the city where the son of David is supposed to sit on the throne. It's intended to be the throne of God himself, Jeremiah 3. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. But when the boiling pot spills over Jerusalem, those Babylonian generals are going to park their thrones right in the middle of the city gates. And of course, this prophecy gets fulfilled. All the way down, we'll get there next year, chapter 39, Jeremiah is going to recount how three different kings camped out in the gate of Jerusalem. And it's going to remind us, and hopefully I'll remember to remind you, that's what he said all the way back in chapter 1. This is going to happen. Now we look forward, it's coming. Why does God allow his people to experience such a humiliating defeat? And not just allow it, but this text says God's going to bring it to pass. Well, he does a good reason, his people have rejected him. They have decided to follow other gods. He holds a boiling pot over them because, verse 16, they have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. God's people are going to get what they deserve. They've burned incense to other gods. Blatant violation of the first commandment. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. So here we have the word uh, offerings. It can sacrifices So perhaps the Jews are trying to find atonement from other gods. They worship idols they make with their own hands, a violation of the second commandment. Also Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. No wonder then the tribes of Judah and Benjamin find themselves under the boiling pot. This visual lesson, this spiritual show and tell is not just a warning to the people of Jeremiah's day. It's a warning to the people of our day. It's a warning to anyone who doesn't have a relationship with Christ. If you are like the people of Jeremiah's day, you stand under the boiling pot of divine judgment. Do not repeat their mistake. They didn't believe that God punishes sin. They thought Jeremiah is making idle threats. They didn't think anybody could ever overcome Jerusalem, it would never be destroyed. And their attitude gets summed up in the middle of the book, Jeremiah 17. Behold, they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. That's sort of a 7th century BC version of bring it. Unfortunately, they said that to the Lord God Almighty, and he brings it. It's a dangerous attitude to take if God is in fact the God of the almond tree and the boiling pot. His threats of judgment are just as certain as his promises of grace. He watches to see his word fulfilled. As the people of Jerusalem will eventually discover. Now, if you do know Christ, this is telling us think twice before you bow down to an idol. The values of this world have a way of getting mixed up with the values of the kingdom of God. We see it all the time. That's why the church has to always be on guard against worldliness, the gods of self, power, luxury, popularity, beauty, always clamoring for attention. There's always the siren call of, I have to get my own way. And this text is telling us, don't listen to them. Turn a deaf ear to them. It is on those type of sins that the wrath of God is about to be revealed. The threats of judgment are just as certain as the promises of grace. The last visual lesson comes to us. In the next vision, the third vision, (coughs) of a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls, we see there that God's servant will be strengthened. God's servant will be strengthened. So you have God's word, God's wrath, God's servant. I know it should probably be all Ws, but I just wasn't that clever this week. Starting at verse 17. But you, dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So there's more show and tell to come. But first, God reminds Jeremiah of his call. Verse 17, but you dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I commanded you. Sometimes important things need to be repeated, especially for doubting and scared Christians. In reality, Jeremiah has already heard most of this before. God's already put his words in his mouth, has already told him not to panic. But what's new is this sense of urgency. By telling his private to, uh, uh, prophet to dress yourself for work, God's telling him to get ready. Literally, it says, gird up your loins. It's not a phrase we use anymore. Today, Jeremiah would be told to roll up your sleeves. Back then, God told him to hike up his robe and tuck it in his belt so it wouldn't get in his way. The other thing that's new is the warning given. End of verse 17. Do not be dismayed by them lest I dismay you before them. Now, I don't know about you, but I clearly, very distinctly remember times when my mom, all the silver women are short and feisty, and my mom would look at me and say, if you're going to cry, I'm going to give you something to cry about. Uh, Some of you have heard that before. Well, that's what he's saying here. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. I'm going to give you something to cry about. If you panic, I'll give you something to panic about. Now, you can hear that. I mean, I read that, and I immediately thought, I've heard that before. The point is, if Jeremiah loses his nerve and doesn't do what God tells him to do, God is going to unnerve him. Now, Jesus says much the same thing for the uh, same kind of warning to his disciples. Mark chapter 8, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels? Anyone who speaks on behalf of Christ, even in the face of ridicule, persecution, even disagreement or dispute, needs to do it with spiritual courage. If Jeremiah is going to be equally bold, he needs spiritual courage. And that's what God is promising to give him. Right here, verse 18. And I behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls. How strong will Jeremiah be? God's going to make him a fortified city. He'll be a fortress of a man. He'll be like a city on a hill with high walls and strong towers defended by a mighty army. Now, Jeremiah is not a military guy. He's a priest, but he's just as strong. God makes him an iron pillar. You think of a steel beam of a man. And this isn't the, pil- the uh, word, is not for like a freestanding column. This is the word for a foundation post that supports a building. Jeremiah is going to be a tower of strength. Almost like a, like a f- flying buttress holding up the walls of a cathedral. He's going to support and uphold the people of God. He also makes them a bronze wall. It's a metal fortification. There are no bronze walls in the ancient world. The British Museum in London has a bronze gate from Assyria, but it's just a gate, not a wall, and it's a wooden gate that's covered with bronze. So it's still pretty strong, but imagine how much stronger it would be if it was bronze all the way through. That's how strong God is making Jeremiah. And Jeremiah needs that kind of strength. He needs the triple protection of being a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall. God commanded him to take his stand against kings, officials, priests, and people of Judah, which doesn't leave him with very many friends and allies. In fact, it doesn't leave him with any. The kings of Judah will be against him. <clears throat> the officials, the advisors, the civil rulers of the kingdom will be against him. So are the people of the land, meaning the regular you know, rank and file working folk. Even his colleagues in ministry, the other priests will turn against him. So with friends like these, who needs enemies? And God has warned Jeremiah, you are not going to win any popularity contests. And the warning is accompanied by these strong words, they will fight against you. You start to understand why the prophets, so many times, they, they hear from the Lord, he tells them what to do, and they're kind of like, how long, Lord, do you want me to do? Like, when do I get to the good stuff? And they're like, never, your whole life, it's all negative, you're just, it's all judgment. And that's what's happening here. They will fight against you. It's a word for military conflict. The people are going to declare war on Jeremiah. They're going to ambush him at every turn. They're going to try to destroy his ministry. And when God told Jeremiah to gird up his loins, we might say another way of saying that is time to put on your combat fatigues. Back in verse 10, Jeremiah was appointed over nations and kingdoms to tear down and to build up. This includes standing up to God's enemies, refusing to give in to political pressure. How could he do it? He's a young man. With no experience in public speaking, how is he going to have the courage to stand against the enemies of God in a fallen land? Well, courage and strength come from the Lord. Jeremiah doesn't make himself into a fortified city. He doesn't fashion himself into an iron pillar, and he doesn't raise himself up into a bronze wool. God said, I make you this day those things. God's the foreman of this Jeremiah construction project. And right from the beginning, he equips him with the courage he needs. It's not just Jeremiah's call that made him uh, resolute. It was God's protection and God's strengthening of him. He doesn't just make him strong and leave him there. He promises to stay at his side, to rescue him, to help him stand and not be overcome. And God keeps all those promises. He's the God of the almond tree, the God who watches to see that his word is fulfilled. Now, you think about it, these are some striking claims. The great Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, how can one man be a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls? It sounds like wild exaggeration. But he says, when you step back and look at the whole career of Jeremiah, it's actually an understatement. Because the prophet holds out longer than the walls of his fortified city, Jerusalem. The walls give, the pillars fall, and the fortified city is turned to dust long before Jeremiah does. And the command for faithful living in a fallen land, eventually I was going to get here, it's not just for Jeremiah. It's for all of us. It's a command for every believer. Jeremiah is a picture of a Christian who stands and is not overcome. But we're given the same commands, not quite in such a show-and-tell manner. But similar, Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. God's given us the same marching orders. The Lord is telling us through Jeremiah, there's nothing stronger than a believer who stands firm. In the Word of God and the promises of God. Now I realize that's a lot of stuff to know. And now we've reached the end of Jeremiah 1. There are 51 more chapters coming. So let's back up and ask the question what are we doing here? Why Jeremiah? Why study Jeremiah? On one level, it's a pretty straightforward answer. On the day of his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples in Luke 24, and he reminded them of what he taught them before his death and resurrection. And that says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me in the prophets must be fulfilled. Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 15, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we should study Jeremiah because we want to know Christ better and see God deepen our endurance in the gospel so that our hope in God and his promises will grow. But that's true of every book of the Bible. What are some ways Jeremiah, that book itself, produces endurance and deepens our hope? So there's four there. And I've listed them in your outline. Jeremiah shows us the fullness of God's character. We live in a world that has a very dismissive view of God. A very limited view of God. We're all trying to bring God down to our level and make him more like us. And Jeremiah challenges that by putting on display the full range of God's character. Contrast to the false gods and idols that the nations worship. The Lord is the only true God. God is sovereignly working out his purposes for human history. Before Jeremiah was even born, he had set him apart as his prophet. And through this man, God is announcing his plans to raise up and destroy nations, as well as his plans for his own covenant people. The Lord is sitting in judgment over his own people, as well as all the surrounding nations, pouring out his wrath on their rebellion. We get the full display of God's character. Second, we're shown the depth of our sinfulness. We live in a world that denies or minimizes the reality of sin. You know, I, I, I do bad things, but, you know, I'm not as bad as him. You know, those other people are worse than I am. I would never do that. Jeremiah just cuts through this delusion with striking descriptions of our depravity. God has wired us to be worshipers, but in our folly, we exchange the worship of the true God for the worship of worthless idols. And sin has its roots in the human heart, deceives us into calling evil good and good evil. And the doctrine of total depravity means that there is no aspect of our being that sin has not infected, is on full display in Jeremiah. Thankfully, the next thing we see is the power of our Savior. (coughs) We live in a world that's in desperate need of a Savior. And Jeremiah points us forward to a Savior who comes from the line of David, a righteous branch who will reign as a wise and righteous king, executing justice. He will be called the Lord is our righteousness because he will give his people the righteousness they need to be acceptable before a holy God. And what we could not do for ourselves, God has done for us through his promised king. And finally, this is probably the main point of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah shows us the riches of the new covenant. There's much of looking forward. And we live in a world that desperately needs the transforming power of complete forgiveness of sins. And Jeremiah points forward to a new covenant that God would make with his people. And through this new covenant, God deals decisively and finally with sin. He writes the law in the hearts of his people and promises, I will be their God and they will be my people. And that's good news. That's good news for you and for me. That's good news that can change your life, that can change this church, that can change this Town, county, state, nation, and the fallen world in which we live. It is that good news that there is a promised king who's coming with complete forgiveness of sins, who will deal decisively and finally with sin and write his law on our hearts and be with us now and forevermore. It's that good news that empowers us for faithful living in a fallen land, here and now, in this place, with these people. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again, in your word, through your spirit, by your son. Open our eyes. We might see our sin, and then see Jesus. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are reluctant followers. We would rather have visions and visual lessons than trust your word to guide us in faithful living. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives and to believe it comes from your hand. (coughs) Forgive us for our lack of faith, Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own fears. Work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees, as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith and renewed confidence in your word and ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through all those things, to draw us closer to your Son, our Savior, The Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.